Hey friends, happy Wednesday. Hope you're having a good day. I have a men's course called The Modern Man's Call and we're about halfway through the first cohort of this course and we are discussing the good king and I thought that it was such a... You know, it's such a good way of understanding masculine psychology and its fullness that I wanted to drop some of the ideas here for you. So I'm going to talk about the archetype of the good king today. Something really important to understand is that, first of all, both men and women have both masculine and feminine energy within their psychology. So we we both have a mix of both and they're just dominant in certain people. It's also important to understand that if you're a woman and you want to understand or see where a man is really struggling, understanding the way that their psychology develops can also be a really beneficial thing. So I tried to, in this, really weave in ideas of myth and ancient religion and psychology to put the story together about the good king. And if you do enjoy this or dig this episode, please let me know because I've been considering doing more of these episodes where I break down different archetypes and talk about how they show up in our lives. So let me know. And of course, the course has a curriculum to really implement these ideas and work through it in a group atmosphere, work through the evolution of masculine psychology. But um, I really find it interesting to understand where these ideas came from and how they got here and what they mean. And so anyway, hope you guys enjoy this one. Today, I'm going to discuss the archetype of the good king. So I want to talk about the archetype of the good king. And whenever we talk about archetypes, what we're really talking about, remember, is a a way to understand and categorize the patterns of reality that we assimilate ourselves to. And so when you look at somebody and you look at the patterns that they're acting out, what you can understand about them is what archetype is activated and living through them at that moment. So it gives us a way of categorizing these things. So depth psychologist Robert Moore wrote a book called The King Within, and that's a really good and pretty short read. If you want to really, really understand the fullness of how the good king archetype shows up in our lives, but I want to assert that the king archetype is the fundamental, the most fundamental archetype that's active within the male psyche. And so if we are doing our due diligence to mature ourselves, to evolve ourselves toward wholeness, then we're going to end up looking something like the good king. So I'm going to start with a quote by Robert Moore. It's quite long. It's a paragraph. Then the subsequent part of this lecture is going to be really breaking down what the hell this quote means. So he said, the king archetype in its fullness possesses the qualities of order, of reasonably and rational patterning, of integration and integrity in the masculine psyche. It stabilizes chaotic emotion and out-of-control behaviors. It gives stability and centeredness. It brings calm. And in its fertilizing and centeredness, it mediates vitality, life force, and joy. It brings maintenance and balance. It defends our own sense of inner order, our own integrity of being and purpose, our own central calmness about who we are, and our essential unassailability and certainty in our masculine identity. It looks up the world 
with a firm but kindly eye. It sees others in all their weakness and in all their talent and worth. It honors them and promotes them. It guides them and nurtures them toward their own fullness of being. It is not envious because it is secure, as the king in its own worth. It rewards and encourages creativity in us and in others. So the first idea that I want to assert here is that becoming the good king, right? This is the positive as the positive pull of the archetype. Becoming the good king is actually really dependent on the hero's journey, right? You actually have to face the darkness. You actually have to sacrifice certain things. And that's what the hero's journey inevitably asks us to do. We have to sacrifice ways of being in the world. We have to sacrifice patterns of behavior that have kept us safe, maybe for our entire life. So there's a holding of tension in that moment. But if you think about the things that cause a lot of our own internal darkness, dopaminergic pathway stuff like alcohol, um, porn, things like that, what those things do is they allow us to, to feel like the hero without actually going through the journey, without actually doing the thing. So they, they allow our our neurochemistry and our circuitry in our mind to feel as though we're doing what we were born for, which is going through our own individuation journey, our own call to adventure, our own hero's journey, and claiming our destiny. Those things that often hijack masculinity and keep us stunted, keep us retreating to our own worlds, keep us in cycles of shame and darkness, those things tend to mimic what it would be like to actually go through the hero's journey. The problem is that then we become an underdeveloped king archetype. We, we end up having an underdeveloped king archetype within us. And so it's important that we, we understand the relationship between the things that we do in this life, like the, the real life struggles of giving up habits that aren't serving us, like all of those things really matter in us becoming the person that we could be, the fully expressed version of who we could be. I also want to assert the idea that we all inherit a devastated kingdom. And the way that we conduct ourselves is what decides whether or not the kingdom prospers. The organizing principles we conduct ourselves according to, right? The things that we actually serve, those decide, those are what decide whether or not the kingdom goes one of two ways, right? Further toward devastation or further toward prosperity. And we can look at this at multiple levels of analysis because you could look at yourself as the king, the king within. And if the king is sick, the entire kingdom is going to suffer. And so your body will show you symptoms of dis-ease when something is off, right? There will be your family won't feel as though it's being blessed, like there will create toxic environments. And that is a result of the king archetype not being in its fullness. So when the king is sick, the kingdom suffers. And what the king does, like the central role of the king, is making the world by acting as the axis mundi. When we look at myth, and when I talk about myth, myth is psychology and ancient language, right? So you can understand the psychology of the human by understanding the myth. And that's why things like archetypes become, why we can see them played out in myth and religion and story, because they're actually, they're a transference of our own psychology happening in real time or happening in story. 
So in myth, the axis mundi was this uh, axis that connected the divine and mortal worlds. So the axis mundi in myth runs all the way from the heavens, all the way to the pit of the earth. And there's a myth that comes out of platonic philosophy, I believe, where souls actually come out of the axis mundi in the center of the earth. And then they go see three sisters. The first one gives, uh, gives the soul its lot in life. The second one spins the wheel and gives them a twist of fate, right? Something unpredictable, things that they don't understand. And then the third sister makes it all irreversible. So there is no going backwards. So you, you're stuck with your lot, so to speak. And then the soul is indwelled by spirit and then incarnated into the world. So that's an old uh, myth about where humans come from. And so the king is thought, wherever the king is, is thought to be where the axis mundi is. So this is a place where the divine can actually get access into the mortal world. And so when you think about something like the image of God in the Abrahamic religions, for example, they're asserting this same idea. So if you look at Egyptian uh, creation mythology, the Pharaoh was often the image of God, right? This is the representation of God. And Egypt took it further and said that the king was the actual God incarnate. And what's interesting is when the king would fail, would fail the land, they would just assume that that was like a false incarnation, essentially, and they would kill him and then find the next one. But in Mesopotamia, they had the same idea, but the king was actually a servant to the divine. So rather than being an incarnation of it, to do whatever he wants with the world, to to give and take life. For example, in Mesopotamia, the king was thought to be the servant of the divine realms. And then what happens is the Abrahamic religions that come really out of the middle of Mesopotamia and Egypt, they democratize the image of God. So then all humanity is made in the image of God. And what that image is, that divine image bearer, is a representation. It is to remember the divine realms. And so one thing that's really important about the king archetype is that the king must be deeply centered within himself. But to do this, he must move from primitive patterns of, of living to divine patterns of living. So we can think about the most primitive pattern of living as avoiding pain and seeking pleasure. And if we don't do the work to evolve ourselves, to serve something other than our individual ego, then what we'll find is that we're living that pattern out constantly. And I don't know about you guys, but I know for me personally, when I live that pattern, it felt as though there was always, like you can never actually get away from pain, right? In this life, that's the first problem with it. So you're creating the thing that you're actually trying to run from. And then the second thing is, you're when you're doing that, you're obviously living for the ego because you're not willing to, uh, you know, shoulder a certain amount of pain in order to um, serve something bigger than yourself. You actually take your entire world and you shrink it down to the size of you, right? So you become caved in on yourself. And so something really important to understand here is that that's wrapped up in all of these ideas is that humans become what they worship or what they serve. So when you look at something like in the Ted Commandments where they talk about, um, you know, not uh, worshiping idols, what 
one of the reasons of that is because you'll actually become what you serve. And so if you serve something smaller than yourself, something dull and lifeless, that is in fact what you will become. And so then if you think about serving something bigger than yourself, you get the feeling of internal expansion. You get the feeling of inspiration and dare I say enthusiasm and what enthusiasm meant take coming from the Greek etymology of the word is to be indwelled by the divine, right? In theos. So it's actually to be uh, literally inspired. And so you want to make sure that you're serving something that's bigger than yourself. And so the ego actually has to be displaced as the center of all things and replaced with a transpersonal other. And that transpersonal other in the world's great religions has been understood as God, right? But the king archetype, in order to uh, express the king in its fullness has to understand that he's not there to serve himself. A proper relationship to the king is like that of the planet to the sun. So the sun gives order, warmth, and life to the orbiting planets, but if we try to merge with it or to identify with it, destruction is going to ensue. And so the ego, the conscious you, right? When you, whenever I say ego or we could say this way, whenever you say I'm hungry or I'm thirsty or I'm this, you're talking from the place of ego, right? So your ego is your everyday experience of yourself. And when you are avoiding pain and seeking pleasure, you're serving the ego's immediate needs. Now, you have to think of yourself, the ego, as the steward of the king archetype. Otherwise, you'll get caught up in your own sort of grandiosity. You're, you are a steward of the king archetype for the betterment of everyone within your realm. A really good example of that you see is King Herod in the New Testament. So Jesus is born, right? And, and it's proclaimed that he's the, the, the new king, the king of kings, if you will. And this idea actually takes place all over the ancient world. So you see it in Africa, you see it in, uh, in, in India and in, in the Hindu religions, the oracles would get around and they would pray and they would find out where the next incarnation of the divine was going to be born or the next representation of the divine was going to be born. And then they would send people there. So think about the Magi in the New Testament. They would send these people there that would bring gifts and let this family know like, hey, your uh, son or, or whatever is going to be the next king. And so then they would raise him to be such. So what happens, though, is King Herod mistakes himself for the king, right? He doesn't understand that his job is servitude, that the king's highest job is actually to serve. And so what happens in this situation is that the he turns into a tyrant, which is one of the negative poles of the king, right? The fully, the non-mature, fully developed king becomes the tyrant. And so he has all of the, the children killed because he can't stand the idea of somebody else being king. He has mistaken himself for the divine. He has mista mistaken himself for the king energy. And so when you do that, when you don't displace your own ego, when you don't serve something larger than, the, than yourself, you're, you're prone to uh, being a tyrant, right? Because you're going to have to uh, rule in a way that allows you to keep this status, this grandiosity that you believe is you're entitled to. And what the fully constellated good king archetypes understands is that they're not entitled to on anything. And that's one of the reasons that the hero's journey is actually so important. So let's look first at the positive 
psychological aspects of the good king. So I'm going to I'm going to break it down into three categories. And again, if you want to get into this, the book by Robert Moore, there's tons of podcasts on it. Like the, the king archetype is one of the most talked about out there. So the three that I'm going to talk about is ordering, fertilizing and blessing. So ordering, you know, we have so many other people's ideas milling around our psyche and it's up to us to order them by rank and structure and, and all of that, right? Because it's actually important that you understand what it is that you think, because if other people, if you don't have this ability to internal order, rank, structure, ideas that come in, well, you see this all the time for people that are glued to the news that think that the sky is always falling, right? Because they're just taking what's coming in and they have no boundaries in their psyche. So they can't keep anything out. And so they're they're susceptible to being possessed by ideas. And so those ideas have them and they don't have their ideas. And that's one of the best ways to know if you're actually able to uh, use that king archetype, right? Is Do your ideas have you or do you have them? Is there objectivity there? You know, and you can really tell that by emotions. And so essentially, uh, the emotions is another good way to think about the king energy because you know when a kid is throwing a temper tantrum one of the things that the parent's job is to do is to mirror to them what they're actually going through and when a parent mirrors something to us it makes us feel like we're actually a human and if you pay attention to kids you'll notice that they're always like look at me watch me daddy watch me do this right they're they're trying to to constellate an identity and an ego and it's the parent's job to order them so when the kid starts to throw a temper tantrum one of the most beneficial things a parent can do is actually explain to the kid what they're feeling because this takes the internal chaos and it begins to order it it takes the wild within and creates uh count uh, boundaries and categories so that it can all be ordered. And so we're ordered by others, right? Our parents and, and our caretakers and our call in adult life is actually to self-order. And so one of the reasons that I'm so can like hellbent on people and my clients understanding the values that they're living by and that they're serving is because your value system is what orders your life. And if it's unconscious, then your life is being ordered by something that you're not actually aware of. And oftentimes when that's the case, when we're unconscious of what we're being ordered by, it's actually just that primitive pattern of avoid, pain, seek, pleasure. So what the king does is creates and embodies the right principles. So without the king, the warrior archetype, for example, is just a mercenary, right? Just starts fighting for the profit motive. And we see this a lot in our culture today. We're, we're pretty lost as, as far as like what ideals we're serving. And so we're like following the profit motive off a cliff, essentially. Um, the magician, and I think the magician is one of the archetypes that's the most constellated within myself because what the magician does essentially is is take old and ancient wisdom and knowledge and make it new and fresh for for contemporary audiences but the magician if it doesn't have the constellated king to give it order it's aimless and it doesn't believe in anything um, the lover archetype becomes the addict or becomes unempathetic and uncaring another place that you see the king archetype or an aspect of the king archetype, the ordering aspect is in the logos, right? The logos, the word, that's, that's Greek for word. And in uh, the gospel of John, he says, in the beginning was the word, right? And so Jesus is the incarnation of 
the word. But they talk about the logos, the world coming from the word. And that's important to understand because if you think about the chaos, right, which is the feminine uh, creative principle, actually has to be structured by something. And so it is the word that structures reality. And this is the exact same reason that you can articulate your for example, emotional system and start to create more order within yourself just simply by articulating because it's words that divide things up into category into categories, categories and give order. And so what's true, and this is something I really believe, what's true at one level of analysis is true at, at most levels of analysis, right? And so we can look at the masculine creative principle, the logos, and understand that that's actually part of the king archetype. You know, when I was uh, younger, a couple of, not that much younger, but like 2015 maybe, I went through a period where I ran my business into the ground, um, you know, went from making good money to making almost no money. And a relationship ended. I thought I was going to marry this person. And that relationship ended. And I was getting out of the military. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do because I planned on getting out to run my business and that was becoming more untenable by the moment. And I did something in that moment and I made like five rules for myself, just five rules that I was going to live by no matter what. And the rules were, well, I don't even remember all of them, but they weren't very good. One of them was see as many sunrises and sunsets in person as possible. Um, so it forced me to like kind of get up earlier and I started going for runs at night just to see the sunset. Another rule that I had was if the surf is up, you must paddle out. Uh, I lived in Virginia Beach and the surf wasn't up that much um, and I felt like I was always missing it. And so I, what I did there though, right, it wasn't really about the fact that they were good rules or bad rules. It was more about the fact that what's happening is I was in chaos and then the king archetype within me was start, was trying to constellate itself. And so I was starting to create order. And I actually had, you know, wasn't like the most enjoyable summers, but one of the most profoundly like growth oriented summers I've ever had in my life. And it was a result of the king archetype being constellated within me before I even knew what the hell the king archetype was. So the so the first one's ordering. The next one is fertilizing, right? This is the regenerative aspect of life. This is what actually mediates joy. There's a really good fairy tale called The Water of Life. And essentially in that fairy tale, what happens is that the king is sick and nobody knows. It seems like he's going to die. Nobody knows what to do. And uh, the, they, the king's family finds out that what they have to do is go get the water of life. And that's the elixir. And whenever you read fairy tales or myth and you want to understand them psychologically, you want to understand that this entire thing is taking place within you. And so what happens is, is his, the king's sons, first couple sons go out, but they're, these are the sons that are the most, they're being groomed to take over as the king. And so they're the most hubris, the most prideful. They're, they're not willing to listen to others. 
and it ends up they end up getting stuck in a rock in the fairy tale and it ends up being the, the youngest son who is the fool who ends up listening to all of the messages along the way and is able to find the water of life and bring it back and and essentially restore order to the kingdom restore prosperity to the kingdom remember when the king is sick the entire kingdom suffers and so when we talk about water of life what we're really talking about is something like what joseph campbell says when he says follow your bliss your bliss is your call to live to grow to create an authentic identity your bliss lies where your greatest talent and interests lie and so We'll discuss the tyrant as the negative pull of the king later, but we want to understand that a tyrant-possessed man, man cannot stand to watch others follow their bliss. And so the reason being is because he didn't follow his own. And you see people like this all the time, people that walked away on their own dreams or perhaps they dismiss them as... Uh, you know, not reasonable or not possible or who knows what kind of limiting beliefs people are walking around with. But one of the reasons that you have to go out is because this interest that you have, whatever, wherever it is, whatever you're being called to in life, right? If you don't, when you go seek that, you're being called on a hero's journey. And it is your call to embody the good king eventually. But when you go after your bliss, it's not like it's all rainbows, right? Like you come up short, you fail, you realize you, you're not talented enough. You have to go back to the drawing board. You have to train harder. You've got to find grit. You, you know, it's all powered by love when it's truly your bliss, but that doesn't make it easy. And so you actually have to go out and seek the water of life. And there's something telling about the fact that it's the fool that is the one that goes and and actually is able to get it because, you know, only a fool would follow their dream, for example, when it's unreasonable, when the world tells them that it's not possible. And so you can see all of this taking place within you because there's part of you probably that's very prideful and very hubristic and, and isn't willing to go out on a limb and to look stupid in, in search of a dream that nobody understands but them. Unfortunately, if you want the water of life, the elixir that makes the king healthy, you've got to go on the journey. So the next one is blessings. This is the, the last one that I'm going to talk about today. So this is the leadership quality that calls forth leaders in other people. So one of the things that I really believe that a leader does is they interact with others in a way that draws forth the other's latent potential right? So we don't always see our own potential. It's actually a leader that gives us the autonomy and the agency and the guidance and the encouragement. And I mean that classically and literally, right? Instills courage in their subjects in order for them to live in a way so that their potential is manifest. Because, you know, to manifest your potential, you actually have to do something in the world. It's a concept I talk about all the time, but potential is given as a byproduct of you engaging with the world. And so you actually have to do that to get more potential. You might not have the potential to run a marathon, but maybe a 5k. And so then you go through a training cycle and run a 5k and then maybe a 10k, maybe a half marathon. And so what you see there is that potential is the reward for engaging with life. But a lot of people need leaders to instill enough courage in them to go out and wrestle with reality, to go, to go dig for resources so that they can manifest their potential. And it is the king that does that. Um, you know, the king generously praises the virtues within the people and the people for displaying 
the virtues, right? So this is something interesting because we have this, we have a bunch of confused self-love movements that go on in the world right now. And we have to understand that if it's truly love, it's not about not living to a standard, right? You can accept something and also know that there's a standard to live to that that's important. There's virtues that matter. And so what the king does is he actually praises the people for their virtues and this draws them out of them, right? This is interacting with a way, with them in a way that, uh, well, this is instilling blessings, right? Because they actually have the courage then to go after or, or to display the virtues that are important to them. So the king has a super, a very deep respect for everything and everyone in the kingdom, right? And so that is, uh, you know, that's really important to understand because if you don't have that, you're not constellating the, the good king energy. Um, the king's also able to affirm himself and doesn't need others to validate him. So this is something in a lot of us that might be lacking if we were not properly mirrored as children, right? Because remember what happens, what, what the parent's doing is from as they mirror for the child is that they're actually telling the child, listen, you're a real person. You matter. You exist. You're accepted here. You're loved. And they, and the way that they do that is by, uh, one paying attention to them, engaging with them, touching them. Physical touch is actually super important in this process. But a lot of times parents, they don't have it within them to, mirror properly to their children. And so what happens is then the children are going out and they're looking for affirmation in the world. As men, one of the ways that we do this, because the affirmer is typically a feminine quality, it's a nurturing quality. And so when that hasn't been constellated in us, and we don't have the ability to affirm ourselves to nurture ourselves, we go out seeking it from our partners, from maybe our female children, from people and people might be happy to do it at first, but your wife, your girlfriend, whoever isn't going to want to have to be your motivation. And I've experienced this myself because maybe I have a really good idea for a project or something that I want to do. And then I'll talk to my partner about it. And she'll just be like, no, I don't think that's a good idea. Now, one thing that you have to understand here is oftentimes when you're going after things, when you're going after your water of life, you're going after something that other people don't see. The dream has been put in your heart, not theirs. It's not their job to affirm for you that what you're doing is a good idea. It's up to you to believe in yourself, right? And so oftentimes what happens is if we're not mirrored properly as children, we lack that affirmer. And so that holds us back in the, const in the constellation of the king in its fullness because we don't have the ability to affirm ourselves. If we can't do it for ourselves, it's going to be really hard to do it for others. And maybe you can get away with it sometimes, but it won't be consistent. So you have to be able to do that for yourself. Um, the king has a deep sense of internal center rather than looking for the center outside of themselves. So that's a continuation of that same idea, right? If you're looking for others to validate you and make sure that you're a good enough person, that you're talented enough, that you're accepted, that you're loved, all the things that, that you have to be able to do for yourself as an adult, then your sense of center won't be internal. And if it can be given, validation, belonging, love, it can be taken. And so this is actually one of the places where I think getting a coach, having a therapist, somebody like that is really great because they can model unconditional love for you and acceptance. They create a container that does that 
And then you eventually, after having it modeled, should be able to do it for yourself. The problem here is that most of us are unable to do it uh, for ourselves because we can only love, including ourselves, to the degree in which we've ever understood love before. And most people, right, most of our parents, just the way it goes, have a very quid pro quo idea of love that's actually not really love. They just love to their capacity, right? And so that's what most of us do. So we actually have to increase our capacity to accept, affirm, and love ourselves. So let's move into the negative poles of the king because we see this everywhere today. <laughs> Whenever a man leaves his internal throne empty, it will be usurped by a shadow, right? Every light in this world has a shadow and the shadow of the good king is either a tyrant or an abdicator. And Robert Moore has a really good quote where he says, a man deprived of being the lord of his own internal quarters is impoverished, right? There's something that is really sad about not ever constellating the good king archetype, though most, I think, many men in our culture don't ever constellate this archetype in its fullness because they don't go through the journey and don't, don't seek the water of life. And so they do turn into something akin to the tyrant. And we all can understand this because even if, even if we are sort of maturing in our masculinity, we certainly have the capacity to be a tyrant. So um, let's see here. Oh, okay. And so the important to understand about the tyrant is that the tyrant is also the weakling. Right. And so what happens is a, for a man who is oscillating here is that they're going to get caught. They're going to end up flowing back and forth between the inflation of the tyrant and the deflation of the weakling. And as such, they don't have the ability to be a generative man. They don't have the ability to bestow blessings on others. And so what happens with a tyrant is that they're actually Remember the King Herod example. They're actually mistaking themselves for God. This is what happens if you never uh, actually take the ego and move it to the side and serve something larger than yourself, that transpersonal other that Robert Moore talks about. And the thing to understand about that is that the tyrant is also the weak, the weakling because the individual ego isn't that strong. You know, we can build ego strength in ourselves so that we can will ourselves to exercise and to eat properly and do all of these things. But if you want divine power, it's not going to come from the ego. It's going to be come from serving the divine. Remember, you serve something bigger than yourself. You actually feel expansive. You get the indwelling of that divine energy and you become something more than yourself. But the tyrant who is reliant on their own individual ego structure and conflating that with being the king is also going to understand that they're the weakling. And so one thing you'll notice with tyrannical men is that they have a hatred for other weak men. And the reason is, is because it reminds of reminds them of their own underlying weakness. Because with our shadows, we can put them out of our mind, right? We can repress them so that we don't see them. We can push them outside of our awareness. But what happens is then we see it out in the world. We project it onto other people. And so then we become enraged by the fact that what's happening there is we're realizing that that's actually who we are. A really good example of this is Hitler. Because I don't know if you've ever heard people saying like Hitler is a good leader or 
whatever, but that's bullshit. Like he's garbage. You know, I, I say we all inherit a devastated kingdom and you can just look at the kingdom after Hitler came through to know that he was nowhere near the good king archetype. But toward the end, when he really starts to lose, right? Now he doesn't have the ability to inflate himself to the tyrant anymore because he, he's just becoming weaker and weaker as uh, the allies are starting to close in on him. And so he ends up living in this bunker. And for the last few years of his life, he actually had to take a concoction, like infused, it was cocaine, amphetamines, and you know some things that increase serotonin levels, basically like a speedball, right? And would have to be injected with this to inflate himself back up to the tyrant so that he could go you know, run the kingdom, make tyrannical decisions and shit. And then as soon as that would fade, he would be back to being the weakling. And eventually even the drug stopped working and he just ends up killing himself, right? And so it's the harsh reality of what happens when a king can't constellate the king archetype in their fullness. They, they oscillate between the inflation and deflation or negative inflation of the weakling. So uh, something interesting here is that because we all get caught in this and because a lot of us have an internal tyrant, one thing that's really important to understand is that grace is the antidote to the tyrant. Because what grace does is it gives, so you can imagine that you, you, you know who you are, you're self-reflective, you're self-aware. So you know, you have an idea of where you shake up in hierarchies and who you are. And you also have an idea of when you fall short of your own standard and ideal. And that tends to be when the tyrant comes out, right? When you do something that by your own definition, you don't like, when you engage in behavior that you, you for whatever reason, deem inappropriate, that's when the internal tyrant comes out and starts beating you up, right? And so what grace does is it makes up the distance between who you are and who you could be and it invites who you are to step forward into who you could be. And so when you give yourself grace, you give the parts of yourself that have been cast aside permission to exist, which invites them back into the light. And so when you rule with tyranny, for example, when you think about the, uh, the internal tyrant, for example, you're actually perpetuating the symptom that's keeping the kingdom weak, right? So the tyrant keeps the, the broken off parts out on the steps, keeps them down, keeps them weak. And grace is the thing that actually invites us back into alignment and integrity with ourselves. And so it is grace that is the uh, antidote to the tyrant. And that's especially true internally. So the other one I said, the other negative pull is the abdicator. I'm not going to get super far into that, but it's, you know, the one that would rather not try than fail. And I think we probably all experience different moments of the abdicator because, you know, we're afraid to, to step up and try to pull the sword out of the stone because what if it doesn't move, right? So one of Robert Moore's uh, particularly, you know, particularly poignant, poignant, points was that the endish of the end of boyish ego consciousness is marked by two admissions that our life is somewhat out of control and that we need help only then can we humbly place ourselves before the energy of the good king and await direction and so what the tyrant doesn't have the ability to do what you don't have the ability to do if you don't serve something larger than yourself is admit that you've reached a point that you can no longer continue. In the 
13th, 14th century, so, so early medieval ages, the grail myth starts to become really popular. And one of the reasons is because the world is being ruled by tyrant after tyrant. And so the conscious, the collective consciousness, you might say, comes up with an understanding of how to restore benevolence in the world. And that's when we get the Arthurian romances in the grail myth. Well, if you look at the very earliest grail myth with Parsifal, the something very interesting happens, which is when Parsifal gets to the, the castle, the king is sick, of course, and everybody has all of this hope in him that, that he's going to be the one that understands the grail and can restore the kingdom. And he doesn't remember that uh, one of his elders, a wise man earlier, told him that when you get to the grail, you actually have to ask it a question. And he doesn't do that. So the first time they present the grail, he actually just drinks from it. And then as soon as he does, the entire procession goes away, the king goes away, they kick him out of the castle, and it takes him 20 more years of questing and knight errantry to get back to the grail and have another chance. And what the grail signifies in that myth is the attainment of ultimate meaning, right? This is atonement at one mint, right? Uh, you come into alignment with the being and you don't have the existential burden of being on your back because you know exactly who you are, exactly what you're here for. This is ultimate meaning. Well, the question that he was supposed to ask the grail is who does the grail serve? And so what he did and what most of us do is we try to make the grail serve ourselves, right? We actually have to serve something higher than ourselves. And so when you think about the transpersonal other that the, you know, that the five great world religions have understood as God, um, when you serve the transpersonal other, right, you could think about that as the highest achievable value. So it's a transcendent value, right? It, it transcends all other values. And what happens is if you're serving the highest value, then every single thing you do gets infused with intense meaning because it's all serving the largest value. And meaning is a byproduct of actions coming into alignment with values. And so when you get to the grail, you have to remember that it's not there to serve you. And when you look at men in the world today who are, well, when you look at men in the world today who are surrounded by goodness in every direction, right? They've got the good job, they've got the good house, they've got the wife and the beautiful kids, and they're unable to taste it. They're miserable and they don't know why. Oftentimes, it's because they are trying to make it serve them. They have not yet understood that the ego has to be displaced and that they have to serve something bigger than themselves. They are a steward of the king energy. They're a steward of the divine. And that sets the kingdom right. And that's what the modern man really, really struggles with. We have a hard time realizing that there could be something more important in this life than ourselves, and we suffer needlessly because of it. <laughs>